Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, Anna Marie Cox is here of Crooked Media and the With Friends Like These podcast. This is episode 29. On the post-Trump landscape, to the skills it takes to be a great interviewer, to science fiction as a corollary for politics, we start with the end of her podcast with friends like these. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I wanted to start with uh, the podcast that you've been doing for um, 240 episodes now uh, with friends like these, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but the episode that I just listen to, you know, this morning, we're taping this on, on Friday. Is that the last episode or because it, it sounded like a goodbye episode? It's the last episode for now. Yeah. Um, it, it could come back. Um, but I drawing it to a close, it, it feels like the right thing to do. I don't know how personal we'll get, but, um, you know, a lot of changes have happened in my life, uh, getting a divorce, moved to Texas, uh, thinking about what I want out of my career. Um, and it kind of seemed like a good time to think about doing something else. Right. Right. I, I yeah. love doing the show. Like, it, don't get me wrong. I, I, I am so proud of that show. I, I don't think, I mean, there's like a couple of bad episodes, but, um, I, I'm so proud of my work. I think it's the most important work I've ever done. And it, reflects a lot of my own growth over the past few years. Yeah. Uh, and, but I also did, this is not involuntary. Like I was ready. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, there's, first of all, I, I love the podcast and I, I, I have to say, you know, it, it started shortly after Trump took office. And so if we're, if we have these sort of guardrails on on the evolution of the podcast i would say it's been it's been quite a five year run uh, of with it and it's been it's interesting kind of the evolution of the country um obviously of yourself personally i you, you say in one of the last episodes not the last one but um that the, this is a time in your life a lot of chapters are ending new ones are beginning drawing this one to a close but you also I love that you sort of had thematic seasons to it. And this one talking about forgiveness and reconciliation, post-Trump America, trying to find models of how we forgive people and if we should, uh, was was really an interesting one, I think. And 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 I have to say, I I I want to talk about some of the early episodes also. But but what do you think as you look across 2021? This is one of the last podcasts that I'll put out in 2021. And the season that you just finished about forgiveness and reconciliation, where do you think we are in the country, in kind of the media landscape when it comes to this post-Trump media world? You know, I haven't lived in D.C. in 10 years. And it's so funny that that's your question, because I haven't thought about it <laughs> in terms of like the media, yeah. you know, when I think about reconciliation and forgiveness in the Trump era, you know, my thoughts go to the relationships that I have and no longer have. Um, and it goes to sort of much larger themes in American history um, and relationships uh, among Americans. As far as the media goes, um, I mean, I still pay attention. Yeah. And I think, 
I, we might argue about this, but it's been amazing to see um, the MSM, which is kind of a fake category. I'm sure you agree. Yeah. But let's say I actually have always liked the term legacy media. Sure. Um, yeah. Legacy uh, establishment. Yeah. It kind of like revert to type, like just like revert to the norm in terms of like how they cover the presidency. Like it's just like a, it's a normal presidency. So they cover it like a normal presidency. Right. Like yeah. there's no, not that I want hand wringing about democracy, <laughs> but it, there was, you know, the, the press seemed to understand their role a little more like during the Trump era and even be self-conscious about it. And now it just feels like, Oh no, it's just like the Biden at white house did this, <laughs> you know, yeah. like the Biden white house did that. And well well, now you get Dana Milbank who's saying that the Biden White House is getting covered even more harshly than the Trump. Well, White House. I think sometimes it is getting covered too harshly because sometimes I think it's the Biden White House did this, the Biden White House did that. And it's like and it's on the level. They cover it with the same almost the same like tone of like children at the border. Right. Or there's still children at the border. But like yeah. it's just there's no sense of scale. It's not, I'm not saying that Biden is becoming is covering too like they're giving Biden positive coverage. I do think some of the coverage is negative and too negative, but there's just no sense of scale to it to me. Like right. it's it's just ev everything gets the same tone. Well, and, like, I, and I think so. Look, I think we're going to disagree on on certainly the coverage during the Trump years. And I think I, I, I would say that I, I agree on some level about the scale aspect of it because but I, but I don't. I, I look at like January 6th with which, you know, if, if, if Biden gets a little bit of coverage, it's, it's because the, the January 6th commission took a, took a day off um, because the amount of coverage that that's getting right now. And I, and I, I wonder about the scale of that, you know, and I, I know there's a debate going on the Jay Rosen and the Ross Douthat side and the, and then the Dana Milbank and, and of, of how we cover Trump, the Republican party these days. Um, but but I wonder, like, and especially now, because you're in Austin, I'm in Dallas, we're, we're, we're now two Texans in the media talking about the media. I wonder if you if the people that you encounter on a regular basis are seeing the last presidency the, the, as as something that's still relevant in their daily lives. Not so much. Um, I mean, I think that threats to American democracy are important to cover. I think the January 6th commission is important. I think it's the ongoing like threats that are more important. Like, again, we'll disagree about what direction this should go, but like, I have a friend that's running for school board now because like shit got stirred up during the Trump era. Right. And he's actually running. I should be very careful about this. He's running as a normie. Basically <laughs> he's not running. Well, you can't run with a party for school board. Right. And his argument is like, I just want to make sure our kids get educated, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he wants to, it's not that he has a position on CRT. I mean, he, he does, and it might not be a position that you, that you agree with, but what he wants to do is stop debating it at school board meetings. Right. And stop debating masks at school board meetings. Like, and instead, like the high school that he's talking about is like, they have trailers. They've had trailers for students for like years now. They might need to get a new high school. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be something that you should debate at a school board meeting? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, well, that, I mean, totally. I think, I think, well, I would, I would separate it out. I think that the CRT debate was a very convenient culture war yeah. debate for both sides, to be honest. I yeah. mean, there were, there were elements of it that, that really fit well in this, in this, you know, 
it's not really an election year, but but you know the the elections that took place this year, it was a great cultural point to to kind of stick your flag in. Um, now the COVID stuff, I think, is actually more of something that touches people's lives on a regular basis, and and I do think that that you know I I, I just. You know, I go to well, Thanksgiving and what's that? Yeah. I was going to say like this. So I don't, again, don't want to get too specific, but there are some school boards meetings that have gone viral because of the kinds of arguments that were made about COVID, let's say. Sure. Yeah. It gets and, and people sticking magnet, like trying to show that they've been magnetized, that kind of thing. Like <laughs> that's not an appropriate use of school board time. Correct. No. And I, but I think to be and, fair, and I think I think that to the extent that some people have been activated to just be like, I want to have a say in my local politics because I don't like the d- debate that we're having. Like, I don't I don't think that this is a, a the way that we should govern ourselves, you know, is to take on national issues and debate them in this context. And I think we should think about what's going on with our students. Right. And you're sure have a debate about covid. Right. But like, certainly wouldn't a small government conservative not like Abbott's no mask (laughs) mandate? You know, like what happened, what what happened in Austin's school districts was that they wanted to have mask mandates and they could not. So, okay, so uh, this is this touches me very deeply because I've got a kindergartner. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that a no mask policy a, a policy that bans masks in schools would be something I would be outraged about and marching in the streets, but that's not what the, that's not what it was. It was a no mask mandate policy, and, and I think that that's something a little bit more in line with with something that makes sense. Now, I will say I happen to be in Dallas. It was one of the few school districts that is def- that was from day one defying the the mandate ban by having a mandate. We have a mandate. They say it's ending January seventeenth. We'll see if that actually happens now that Omicron's on the rise. Who knows? But but no, I, I think that I think the idea of mandates and bans. But philosophically, and, shouldn't a small government conservative <laughs> be on the side of the most local decision? Yes. Yeah, for sure. That's that's my point is like we can argue about masks, but not a surprise. Everyone's a hypocrite. Right. I don't like to play the hypocrite card, except Texas in particular like I wrote a column about this, like Abbott goes nuts over local ordinances. And it's I have just, a theory. When did you get to Austin? Uh, December of last year. Okay. So you were here for the, for the freeze. I the, moved into this house the weekend before the freeze. Okay. Cause I, and I was, I was affected by it. I, my theory yeah. is that Abbott has been flailing since that Oh, yeah. And just trying to change the topic in any way it can, because I mean that thing is that ERCOT's not fixed. That he, yeah. you know, and, and I, I'm not saying it's all his fault, but you know, you could do be doing a little bit more for it. I mean, I, I was I was about to start a recall Abbott campaign when I was sitting there, you know, free in you know, my 40 degree house with my, you know, my four year old by trying to get warm by the fire and my dog shivering. I mean, it was like this is insane. And now all of a sudden he's getting himself involved in like every performance culture war that yeah. there ex- that exists. Yeah. Right. So, so I don't know. anyway, I mean, again, like to, I mean, ask the question about the media. I mean, I think I think culture war gets covered disproportionately. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to the advantage of both parties to a certain extent. Um, lesser of the Democrats you kind of lose, but 
it's also just a fucking like let's talk about like people's lives. Well, that's the, I mean everything you know? is nationalized at this point. Yeah. You know? And and I and I see that it's probably easier. I mean, look, I was at CNN. It's hard to do to really do local stories if it involves you. You know, ultimately you're going to helicopter into a community, stay there for four hours talk to three people at a diner and helicopter out and all of a sudden you've done a story on local, you know, whatever the local issues, you haven't done anything. You're trying to use this as a, you know, to nationalize something. There are structural reasons for all of this that go back to, like, I could make an argument, um, the fact that we don't have like really good, you know, social safety net because the kind of news that you can get has to be done by people who can work for large national organizations, right? Like you can't have amateurs doing the news. You can't, it's hard to be a local freelancer. Imagine that. Imagine trying to support yourself doing local news stories. You're not going to get paid enough, right? And very few people are even going to take that chance because they need they need healthcare, right? They need childcare. Um, I think one of the reasons, like you know, like the UK and Canada have this like arts support program, you know, like yeah, that you kind of can make a salary as an artist. I think we should do that for journalism. I know you don't like that idea, but like it would mean that people could more kinds of people could be journalists not just it, it's starting to change but for the most part the reason why journalist is like so white and so middle class is because that's who can afford to be journalists yeah right and 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 and, it, and they afford to be in the the centers that that have it i mean i, I i've yeah. always argued that it, the the bias that mo, you know is most troubling to me about the the current state of journalism is not political bias but geographic bias and and you i mean if you're not in new york or dc and it's changing a little bit with the pandemic but you know it 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 takes a lot and it takes buy-in by the major you know establishment legacy i don't know whatever we want to call them media outlets to really understand that there's value to having thriving bureaus to having journalists that don't just spend a a little bit of time but actually live in these communities it also should to Let's also put a little bit of, you know, it's not all, it's all structural, but it's not all at the top, which is to say, pay for local news people. Like, you know, one of the first things that I I did was subscribe to, I subscribe to the Dallas Morning News and the Austin American Statesman, and I pay money for it, you know? Um, And people are unwilling to pay money for news. And that's, again, a structural reason why it doesn't make any sense to be a local news freelancer, is any story you write is going to have to depend on the news cycle, which means it's going to be a national story. Right. 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 So it just, it, I mean, and I would say add, I think we can perhaps find an area of agreement that, that political bias is, is a function of the kinds of people who come to journalism. Right. And I would also point out not just like regionally, but class, totally race. Um, and also disability is a thing that I harp on a lot. Like, you know, 30% of Americans like will be disabled at some point in their life. I think the number is, and it's some, not all like disabled at some point in their life. Right. Which is a big category, but like it's what that kind of means is at some point, everyone needs to have to think about their lives a little differently, you know, whether it's like getting up some stairs or like having a trauma response to shit, who knows, but we don't have enough people thinking about that in newsrooms. No, no. And, and, and I, and I totally agree. I mean, the, the, and it's only gotten, I would say it's gotten a little bit worse. I mean, I think, you know, I, I want to ask you about your time in DC, um, you know, at Wonkat. If I can the, remember it. Yeah. Oh, sure. I'm sure. Uh, I, I'm sure you get, but, I was drinking a lot. <laughs> there are, there are stretches, especially towards the end when I was taking benzos and drinking, there are 
huge swaths of like 2008 that I have no recollection of. One of Anna Marie Cox's early frequent guests on her podcast was Rick Wilson. What does she think of the trajectory that he's had? During the Trump era, I think that, you know, and again, your, your podcast was a part of it. I, I think that that it, it was it was interesting to see the directions that that different people went, and and I I look at something like you know, the the conceit of with friends like these was that you're going to talk to people of, of you know of various backgrounds and points of view, and you did, but then I also look at like some of those early episodes you had with like someone like Rick Wilson, for example, and then to see the journey of Rick Wilson over the last few years has been something that has been, you know, look, I mean, he's always kind of a tough talking guy and he's, you know, a Republican, but, but I, I wonder about the people that in my mind have become on some level what they hate by, not by any real, you know, not, not that they, they did it consciously, but, but that the, the moment was so, whether it's traumatizing or, or there's an opportunity there, it became something that I, I wonder about the people that that went down that path that had normal conversations before. And now I, I wonder if that's even possible with some of these people. You're being very generous um, to say that they didn't mean to do that. Uh, what I will say um, is that I did lose interest in talking to never Trumpers basically. Yeah. You know, um, and another function of media bias, basically. I think they got too big. I think that I've just, we heard from them way too much. You know, they're not representative of the Republican Party, number one, right? Yeah. And number two, it's not like there's a wide, it's it's a, it's like the narrowest slice of people. <laughs> so yeah. like- They over-index I, in the media too. Yeah, right. And it's in, it's a, it's a, a structural thing that, that that's where you're going to go. Like number one, it's like easy to find them in DC and New York. Right. And it makes you look like you're getting different opinions. You are not actually getting different opinions. You're getting a lot of the same opinions. And also like, and again, it's funny, like we're going to have a lot of like agree to disagree parts, but it's fine. Um, for me, as someone who marched against all the Gulf Wars, like having Bill Crystal just be like, yep, I'm a, I'm a, you know, like I'm a pro black lives matter guy now. Yeah. Resistance. <laughs> like, welcome to the resistance. Bill yeah. Welcome to the resistance. Hey, motherfucker. Like you're responsible for one of the most, like the most, uh, the worst humanitarian crisis in modern history. Like, I think I want to talk to you about that before we're friends, you know, yeah. like, I mean, I, I don't want, I don't think you should hold stuff against people forever. Talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. But <laughs> one of the things we talked about in that series was the acknowledgement of harms. You cannot forgive someone who does not admit they did anything wrong. Right. That's the first step, right? That's the, uh, you know, I, well, well, you can forgive them. Actually forgiveness. There is a sort of argument that you can forgive someone generously and that's a really good kind of forgiveness, but when it comes, but people also have to be held accountable. Yeah. And, 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 and I want, I mean, you look at something like, again, going back to the right. Lincoln. Project. What I would say actually is you can do forgiveness without the other person, but reconciliation. Okay. You need the other person and they need to be held accountable. The next step there. Yeah. And, and I, I, I look at something like the Lincoln project, which again, now you talk about housing the people that are in this never Trump uh, circle. Bill Crystal was not in the Lincoln project, but you know, Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, um, certainly would, people who I had have, have called friends in the past. 
Yes. And, and, and I would say people that, you know, would probably be put in this category of, you know, the other party did we did agree to disagree, you know, but then it's not necessarily the political views have changed or, and again, I mean, there's probably a lot of crossover about maybe how you feel about Trump, but tonally there was a real shift. And I mean, I see it, I see it every day. I mean, I, there was the, the, the viral clip of Rick Wilson on CNN with Wajahat Ali and making fun of the, you know, the dumb hicks who don't know how to, you know, do that. By the way, I mean, Rick and I are on good terms. I think he's a good guy. I'm not trashing Rick Wilson, but yeah. But stop it. Don't do that. Like, he, he should know better than anyone that if you want to want to get anything done in this country, like, don't, don't, no one should talk that way about anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you're not helping any cause. Well, that's the thing. And, yeah. and even if it's a temporary, you know, it's a temporary help, it, it ends up being, I, I think, on some level backfiring to whatever oh. point you're trying to make. Same thing with like the Yunkin stunt with the white supremacists. I, I just, you know. All terrible. Part of me thinks that they're like triple agents. Right. You know? I know. Like, I just, just stop. I don't with friends like these, like, I don't want that kind of help. I didn't I wasn't a fan of anything they did, to be honest, like. I had to did an interview with Steve and Rick for Texas Tribune Festival last year where it's not like I went hard on them, but I'm like, is any of this shit going to work? <laughs> like you're, you're doing, you're, you're doing this only in urban in like markets where like people already are going to vote against Trump. Right. And these aren't the kind of ads that are going to sway someone who is a Trump voter. No. So what's the fucking point? If, in, if you are sincerely telling me this is a sincere operation and they would argue, they did argue, oh, we're trying to psychological warfare against Trump. And I'm like, well, that's a, that's a moving and possibly empty target, you know, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it's certainly who, not going to translate, even if you can say that it had some effect on 2020 is not going to translate to other races. We saw that in Virginia, it's not going to, you're not going to be able to graft on whatever you think of Trump to Glenn Youngkin. It just, it's not going to work. It's not going to be convincing of, of people. I, mean, I, I think that there's a, a, a hold accountable, the Republican party, but yes, I agree. Like, Every race needs a different strategy. And that's true just in general in politics. Right. Well, it was true. Now school board elections have been nationalized. So, you know. They have. Sometimes I mean, you don't. But right. I kind of hope you, I, I, as someone who is so much farther to the left than you, do want those things to be local and on local issues, even if they don't break my way, you know, I don't know like, how much farther left politically you are than, than me. I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm certainly more critical of media, but I, I do it from a place of, of, uh, you know, really being frustrated with it. I, I think that the country needs a really strong media that people can trust from both sides. And, and I, I don't think it was that long ago that we had a much better version of this. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, I had, I had a great time. I mean, I, I worked at CNN. I loved all the people that I, I still love people that are, that are there. Um, I, I, I worry about this version of it that feels very far from the people, the people that are involved in these, in these, you know, that care about local issues that, that are, don't, are not wrapped up into the daily, 
who you know. aren't represented by the white, largely liberal, largely yeah. able-bodied, largely cis, however you want to put it. Like you and I might disagree about like what kinds of things need to be represented in, in serious numbers, but like there's a ton of people out there who just look at the media and do not see themselves. Right. Right. And, and, and therefore their issues do not get covered. And would you, would you say, cause now this is interesting. I mean, the media has made a, a conscious effort, I would say to, portray themselves as more, um, you know, there, there, there are attempts made on some level to portray diversity on, on, in various levels. Right. And I wonder how, to what extent that's, that's working or if it feels like it's surface and it's, it's not really, you know, accomplishing what they're, they're setting out to do either. That's me again in 10 years. Right. I guess we'll see. Um, I think right now it, sure it helps. Like, I'm not going to be like, don't do that. Um, and I, I think it's kind of impossible to do something that's just a surface change. If you're actually hiring these people, sure. like it's going to make something of a difference, right? Because to some extent, it really is just about seeing people like you making news, doing news and making that a possibility for more people. But yeah, like ask me again in 10 years, like, um, one thing I, I'm not going to surprise anyone. I have a friend who's like, um, sometimes she calls herself like a, well, I shouldn't do this for herself. I will call her like an anti-diversity trainer, but <laughs> hold on for a second, okay. which is to say she talks to companies about whiteness and her big argument is like, if you just do a diversity program, it's not going to do much. Like you might get people and yes, it's going to make some difference. Yay. Get great. But if you think of these people as like, oh, we're doing diversity hires, that's a problem. Yeah. Right. And if you don't recognize like, oh yeah. And we're all white. Like we have an identity too, you know, and that is the de facto culture of our workplace. And it is like bringing in someone from another country, from another language, whatever, like, and expecting them to just like, can you change everything if you're an immigrant, you know? Right. Um, well, and, and it's I, also so, who has the power in those situations. You know, I, yes. I look at it as like, you know, you, you bring in a bunch of entry level people that makes it quote, you know, that ups the numbers, you know, that's, that's maybe, maybe a short term fix, but you're not going to really make any, any real difference in the, in the long run either. Coming up, we're talking about the origins of Wonket and the way snark has evolved. Plus, what does it take to be a great interviewer? That's next. But first, we're looking back at Jesse Smollett. You know, Jesse Smollett kept up the lie about the hate crime hoax all throughout his trial, but the jury and the criminal justice system knew what pretty much any logical observer of the facts knew shortly after it happened. It was all a lie. While Smollett will now be held criminally culpable, the media deserve to be held journalistically culpable. It's one thing to get a story wrong. It's another to uncritically report an incendiary story and use it to smear half the country or the entire country, depending on the outlet. And that is why the story was reported so sloppily and definitively. It was a signaling opportunity, given the MAGA-ness of the entire ordeal. At the time, I put together a thread that looked at some examples of journalistic malpractice and the way supposed journalists took the opportunity before any facts were verified to smear Americans. But the biggest takeaway for the media is the sad reality of our current cultural moment. Getting it right is often more damaging for news organizations in our current cultural moment than getting it wrong. See how Entertainment Tonight, hardly a bastion of journalism, dared to make the responsible choice of saying 
possible. And thus, they got the wrath of AOC. Entertainment Tonight tweeted, Breaking, Jussie Smollett has been hospitalized in Chicago after a possible homophobic and racially charged attack. There is no such thing as racially charged, tweeted AOC. The attack was not possibly homophobic. It was a racist and homophobic attack. It is no one's job to water down or sugarcoat the rise of hate crimes. That was her tweet. And it went viral. 32,000 retweets, 150,000 likes. Look, it's going to take courage for news organizations to stand strong and not jump to conclusions, to use terms like allegedly when reporting out accusations the next time they're faced with a story like this. How are they doing so far? Over on CNN, John Avalon had what is whatever the opposite of the quote of the day is. Donald Trump is the Jesse Smollett of American politics, he said. More with Anna Marie Cox coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech, big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, free speech, free ideas, free TV. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Anna Marie Cox. I want to ask you about, about DC. Walk okay. at 04 to 06. Um, and I think that it was coming up at a time. Um, I actually saw on Twitter someone sharing a picture of you I saw too. and Jessica Cutler uh, uh, together, which brought back memories. I think that was how I first I first learned of you and your work um, was that story, which which was blew up. And we don't have to get into that story, but people can Google it. I, I want to know, though, what you think of of, of that time, I, mean, I, I think, you know, in seeing your work, obviously, since then, that was a, a little while ago. But, you know, that that was also a different time, like in the internet, it feels like. And there, we've gone from this place of, and, and I don't know, there's still snark out there. Um, but it's very different than what you might see, you know, on Twitter, what, what would be like, you know, people doing like mean tweets or something. It's a very different vibe. And, and I, I wonder what you think of kind of the evolution of where the internet as a personality has gone from when you were running Wonkette to kind of where things are now? I think in a lot of ways, it's it's a reflection of national trends and that it's become more polarized. I think people are meaner and people are also more sentimental. Like, I think there's a huge part of Twitter and it's the part of Twitter and Instagram that I like, you know, that I hang out in that's super mushy, you know, <laughs> yeah. like just like, not, it's not even like, it's also like social justice warrior, like overload. Right. Yeah. Like, and I follow a decolonized fitness account, <laughs> which I have an argument for, but okay. still like every time I see it, I'm kind of like, Colonized. okay, that's like, that's me now. That's me. I follow a decolonized fitness account. <laughs> wow. Well, I, gotta say, I saw, I saw a Gawker article the other day about, about how it's okay. White people, you could take black lives matter out of your, your profile now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, so I think there's like a sentimental and social justice warrior part of social media that can become self parody. Right. And also kind of fall back on itself and become harmful in its own way. Uh, and then there's like Chapo Trap House, which I do consider the rightful heir to the Wonkette throne on some okay. level. Interesting. But damn it, they're mean. Like mean too. Like, I, I mean, it's not in good fun, right? I don't know how much you listen to them, but like. I, I see the, I don't listen regularly, but I, you know, I, I got the vibe. 
Yeah. And I think that there's people on the left and the right, and I'm not going to try to make a who does it more argument that like it, it becomes the whole, I don't think of these other people as real yeah. problem. Right. Well, we definitely, I mean, that, that feels more than ever, you know, the, the less we spend with each other, maybe it's the pandemic. Um, we, I feel like the more we get with that, I have to say, I, in doing research for this, um, I found a video of you and my previous podcast guest, Tucker Carlson, together, I think it was for the ASPCA or something like that yeah. for, for dogs. And I think of it as like, look, people have lots of things to say about Tucker. We don't have to get into Tucker. That could be a whole thing. But there, there is something about, about him that I would say still is not what you would consider mean. And I, let me just throw this out there. I think that there is a sense of... Well, there's affect and then there's like effect. Well, okay. But, but affect is a lot of what you're talking about, right? I mean, that is the, the Chapo trap house is, is, is outwardly mean. That's the vibe of it. It's, it's don't, you know, it's, it's exclusionary in a way. And I, and I do think that there's, there's a difference there with the person who you once were in a, a, a dog commercial with to, to, to adopt dogs. Oh, wait, what do you mean? I don't think that, I think that there, that, that Tucker's point of view is is more it's it's less of a you know pushing people away and and it's it's more it's it's more of a um, you know I actually I, I disagree because we were friends I haven't spoken to him I don't have I don't wish him ill I do wish his show ill let's say <laughs> but um, one of the reasons why we haven't spoken I'm actually sort of curious to talk to him because we were we were friends yeah, I'm sure you talked to him is I don't know if I want to, and this is yeah. I'll explain, is that when I watch his show and he talks about how, what liberal elites want and what liberal elites think of real America and like the nefarious shit that we have going on, I'm like, I'm you're talking about a friend of yours. Like, do you think I actively like want poor people, like poor white people to die? But I don't think he thinks that of you. Uh, you. No, he doesn't. But that's, that's, but I am, I am a liberal elite. No, I am. You're not. No, you're I fucking am. You're, no. you're not an elite. Okay, anymore. fine. Then like, who is right. But like, I have, I was friends with um, Pete Hexeth or still, we still kind of are friends. I mean, we communicate, I guess. And I've actually done this with him. Like I've seen him on, you know, Fox and friends and been like, you're talking about me. <laughs> Yeah. And you don't, I mean, you can laugh if you want, but like, it's, it's a form of like, I know how people in middle America feel when there are huge, you know, assumptions made about their motivations. But you are much more open-minded than I think the people that, and again, I'm, I don't really, I don't care. To well, then, has he done a fucking poll? No, <laughs> like it, you, everyone is more open-minded when you talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And I just hate, I hate, I hate it when I hate it when Rick Wilson made fun of like, you know, whatever, Yeah. by the way, I used to tell him on my show, like when he talked about meth addled, whatever, I'm like, I'm in recovery. I know math addicts. Some of their politics are pretty liberal, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. also often they're pretty smart. Like, yeah. you know, it takes, it takes someone a with a lot of smarts to like be a meth addict for any amount of time. Like if you're dumb and you're a meth addict, you're not going to last. Like, <laughs> you know, that's interesting. And, All right. and, and so whatever, like, I, I think, I think it's just as wrong. I know like people might laugh, but it's just as wrong to make these wide ranging assumptions about the motivations 
of the liberal elite. It's the motivations part that actually really gets me. Fair. Okay. Motivation of it. Yeah. Yeah. Assigning and that's what he does. Like if you watch his show, that is what he does is he assigns malicious motivations. Okay. I, th I, okay. I've got, I, I, we could spend a lot of time on this. I, I, I think that there are some motivations that have come out in the span of the last four years that have, that we see that it's certainly broad brush to say, everyone who's a liberal and certainly a liberal elite. Let me ask you two other quick things. I want to talk, you're, you're ending with friends like these. So I wanted to go to another thing I, I, I love that you did, which was when you ran the New York, or when you were the, the New York Times talk uh, interviewer, you interviewed. That was, a, that was a, one of the best gigs I've ever had. I was, it was so cool. And I loved, I mean, I, I went to your last piece, which was sort of, we're talking about endings here. Um, and which was great advice about interviewing in general, talking about the process for it, which was like, I mean, you interviewed these people for like an hour and then you publish, you know, just a few questions and answers like, man, I would have loved to put that out as a podcast or something. That would have been awesome. You know, uh, you there, you with lots of, lots of people on the right that you talked to Glenn Beck, Ted Cruz and others. Um, but you talk about interviewing and I just want to say, I want to ask you about interviewing real quick. You said you need patience and humility. The more focus you put on asking a great question, the more it's about you. And that shows an interviewee can tell and it detracts from the gentle magic and focus. Curiosity can work. I, I, I totally agree. I think we've gone from both sides way too curious, way too interested in what we ask what the interview at. I, I've actually seen reporters tweet out their question and not even the answer. And I'm like, what are you doing? This is totally antithetical performative, to what your just job pure, is. Purely performative. Yeah. So, so what, what do you think now? I mean, that's what you said at the time that was 2017. Um, having done all these great interviews on your podcast, what do you think of the kind of the, the state of interviewing and kind of you, what do you love about interviewing? I could, we could do a whole nother like 45 minutes. Um, I have so many thoughts and I still think interviewing is a lost art or disappearing art. Um, one of the things I've taught interviewing now a, a few times oh, at McAllister really? and, um, uh, it forced me to like really put into, you know, bullet points, like my philosophies about interviewing. And one of the things that I realized is curiosity is the key, Right. If you are just curious about, so I actually had an argument with another journalist about this because my argument is you can go in cold, like just completely cold to an interview. And if you are curious about that person, it will become a good interview yeah. because that's the gentle magic. I saw this again and again, especially with people who you disagree with or come from a different place. If you just ask how did you get to that place or where are you from or what's changed for you or why do you feel that way? They will tell you. And then this is the magic. They'll ask. And what about you? What do you think? Yeah. Now in an interview for the New York times, like that's not necessarily something you're going to keep. Right. But even if you're interviewing for the New York times, that magic changes an interview. Like it becomes a two-person dance. It becomes more intimate. Yeah, it's a conversation. It's a conversation. And that's yeah. the best kind of interview, right? Right. Oh, totally. So I feel like, I, oh, the other thing I say sometimes is um, everyone is interesting too, right? That's why like, again, I mean, someone, no one's ever challenged me to like sit down with some random person and see if I can get a good interview. But theoretically, I believe that I could uh, because, or anyone could, because I believe 
people are naturally curious and people are naturally want to have some narrative intimacy with each other. Yeah. And we have to be taught not to do that. Like we have to try to not be curious. We have to try to not be intimate with each other. Like those are things that go against who we are as people. Um, so a lot of what I, I tell people about interviewing is just like, you don't necessarily want to go with your gut right from the beginning. And when you're getting your, like, when you're getting your sea legs and we're starting to get the hang of these things. But once you develop some confidence, if you have a question and you think it's unaskable or you think it's vague or you think whatever, but you just like want to know, ask. Yeah. Ask. Man. Yeah, I, I, I keep going back to the pandemic, but it's like we need that IRL interaction more than ever these days. And I and I agree. I, I think, knock on wood, when this thing is eventually somewhat subsided, I, I just I hope we all get back out and start talking to each other again because that would be that would be one wonderful side effect I would say of of this current crisis that we're in. The Fourth Watch Lightning Round is coming up, but first, her new project about science fiction and politics. Before we get to the lightning round, I, I could talk to you about recovery, sobriety, uh, your your turn to faith. All of that is so interesting. Go find Anna's work on all of that. Um, but let me ask you about Space the Nation, because that is a... Oh, a that, I, we just finished taping an episode. I'm so excited. No all one right, to ask me about that. <laughs> well, the, the intersection of politics and science fiction, science fiction in real life. Uh, fascinating. What, what made you say, I got to do this? So there's an easy answer, which is that Sci-Fi Channel, um, what used to produce The Expanse, they were the home to The Expanse, and they had the official Expanse podcast, right? Then they canceled The Expanse, and The Expanse went to Amazon Prime, and they wanted to keep the official podcast, but they needed like a rando to do it, basically, because it wasn't going <laughs> to be like the official podcast anymore. Yeah. So they asked me to do it, and oh. then I realized what... I love about the podcast is at the time and if still it's one of the only like major, you know, I guess we can call it primetime or literally primetime, like major, like successful TV shows in modern American history. That's a lot about labor unions, <laughs> uh, in the books, even more than the TV series. And it's also about international relations and it's, uh, it is about, um, political maneuvering also. Uh, and I realized my good friend, Dan Dresner, uh, actually had just written a column about how Expanse was the best show on television about politics. So I invited him to become the co-host of the Expanse recap show. And oh. we did that for two seasons and then they canceled all of their podcasts. And we decided this is too much fun to not keep doing. So we did season five of the Expanse last year. And then we're like, okay, now what we're going to do, <laughs> like we started as an Expanse podcast, but we should be, it's now over for the season. Yeah. Uh, so now we just do, we do all kinds of things. We've talked about the matrix. We've talked about at the mountains of madness. We've talked about the left hand of darkness. We've talked about, um, the tomorrow war. Uh, we talked about, um, uh, Falcon. Uh, I always want to say Falcon and snowman, right. But <laughs> the winter soldier is yeah, Falcon, the winter soldier. It. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, see, it's winter and it's, it's like, right. you know. there's a connection. Yes. Um, and it's not, uh, it happens to be today we did talk about someone who seems like a Trump analog, but that's not typically what we do. <laughs> it's not like we just transfer like, oh, this person represents the Democrats and this person right, represents right. the Republicans. Dan brings an expertise in like military history and international relations that I learn 
so much. Um, yeah, I lo- I mean, it, there is so much. I feel like, like describing we- like this is you know this is a thing that happened in the Peloponnesian War. Like this strategy was used then, right? Wow. All right, um, so- we, we had a discussion today about soft power and the use of humanitarian um, disasters as a political uh, bargaining chip, uh, like is happening right now. Yeah. Um, and I think Belarus. I'm gonna say. Okay. That seems and right. I got. I got to ask Poland. Dan. I don't know. Um, I know Poland is the place that they're threatening to send the refugees. Um, I think Turkey, Turkey for sure. Yeah. Um, so he talks about that. And then for lack of a better <laughs> way to put it, I am the social justice warrior and someone has to be. And sure. uh, I often talk about, you know, well, the, the catchphrase is, Anna, did you find out a way to point out the evil of capitalism in this show and i'm like yes i did uh <laughs> always there <laughs> always there it just, sometimes the shows do it for you and sometimes you have to kind of dig it out like in alien which is actually it's actually a little bit self-consciously about labor organizing um you know there's this work stoppage in alien okay like they refuse to do the work it, until they get the share of the their salvage team right i don't know if you how many times you've seen alien i've seen it many, think, many times. Okay. I think I've seen it once. So I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to go with your anyway, alien knowledge. Um, so, uh, I th- I'm hoping my enthusiasm is translating and that it sounds vaguely interesting to people who are interested in politics. Um, we have a lot of fun, you no, know, it's great. Like it's, it's the only place, um, only, uh, podcast in America where you're going to get references to Theocities and Adorno. So check it go. out. It's a, it's that a sounds appealing to you. And it doesn't sound appealing to many people. <laughs> no, I think so. I mean, look, sci-fi and real life. I actually think there's a lot. There's a lot of crossover right. there. I think that's an awesome. It's weekly. Awesome Space the nation. We have a Patreon page. Go check it out. All right, Anna Cox. Last thing: six questions, sixty seconds. Where were you born? Uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, you were the host of With Friends Like These. What is one? What was one benefit and one cost of that role? Okay, it's continuing more than this. A benefit I learned so goddamn much. I met so many people, and the cost was, um, it's an, it was emotionally tough show to do. Like it, it's it's emotionally hard. It like took a big like emotional labor toll. Yeah, I bet. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? David Carr. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? I guess besides Pete Hegseth. Well, yeah, we haven't chatted in a long time, but like we used to, we used to. Um, uh, Let me think, would surprise people. I mean, everyone is, is, gets really weirded out by like how much um, sympathy I have for Ted Cruz. So um, I'll guess, I'll say that. I've written a lot about him and not all of it is mean. (laughs) Your fellow Texan. Fellow Texan, fellow nerd. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I actually, if, if he wasn't, if he hadn't become such an asshole, I'd want him to be on the, on the space, the nation podcast. He could do it. He, he's I know that. he would, but he's being such a dick. Yeah. So All right, we'll anyway, who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention. Sorry, I've taken more than 10 seconds. No, on no, you, should, you should give people a heads up, man. This is like, uh, it's, it's part of the fun. I'm going to go with Alice Wong. She is a disability rights activist who's also hysterically funny. 
and writes really engagingly about stuff that we need to care about. And it's really hard for people, especially like she breathes with assistance. So she's not on TV much, you might imagine, right? Yeah. Like she has a, she, she jokes about it. She sounds like Darth Vader. You know, she wears a fate, like a, a oxygen thing. Um, and that's too bad because people are missing out on a really funny, really smart person. That's great. All right. Last one, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Uh, I think the newsletter, um, bubble will end. Oh no. All right. Well, with that, Adam Marie Cox, thank you so much. You, I, I can't one quote about the newsletter battle. So I, I subscribe to all my friends' newsletters. It's not that it's not hard. It's cheap. I want to support to mine. them. Uh, pr- yeah, I do. Um, I pay for a lot of them. Uh, I won't say which one I had this thought about, but I've, it's I'm a huge fan of the writer. But this person sends out stuff constantly. And I had this thought, like, I wish someone would collect the best of this and put it somewhere. And then I realized that's a magazine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's print them all out and then we'll put them on little page. You know, we'll, yeah. oh, there you go. So. All right. Thanks so much. That was great. Thank you. Thanks so much to Anna Marie Cox. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. Yeah. See, we like newsletters here. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download and like, rate, review, follow this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The next episode, I will be joined by Michael Moynihan of Vice News and the Fifth Column Podcast. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.